feel like we're introing a John Carpenter movie here. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 23 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And welcome back, everyone, after a wonderful three-day holiday weekend observing the great holiday of Memorial Day. We hope you guys all had a wonderful, safe, pleasant, and reflective Memorial Day weekend as we did here at The Right Take. You know, it really is one of the most important holidays for a lot of reasons. It's a holiday people don't think as much about. It's not one of the seasonal holidays like Christmas or Thanksgiving or Halloween or anything along those lines. But it is truly a very important holiday, certainly here in America, where so many Americans throughout history have given their lives for this nation and to protect others in some cases. And it, it's so important, too, because this is, this is a holiday that almost always gets proper observance from all the major actors in our society, including at the political level. Although that tradition appears to have been broken this year, we just got to talk about this. So, of course, it goes without saying we did go from a very uber patriotic president like President Trump to a president and vice president who couldn't possibly hate America more in Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And that was reflected perfectly in the two tweets they posted acknowledging that Memorial Day weekend was here. On May 29th, Biden, from his official at POTUS Twitter address, tweeted this wonderful observance, this wonderful commemoration of Memorial Day. Quote, stay cool this weekend, folks. End quote. And it's a picture of him and a young girl, and he's holding an ice cream cone. Not to be outdone by the man that she hopes to one day so she can take over, Vice President Kamala Harris, at VP, tweeted this truly heart-wrenching tribute to the millions of Americans who have given their lives in combat for whom Memorial Day is meant to remember. Quote, enjoy the long weekend, end quote, with a picture of her <laughs> smiling. <laughs> I mean, and I saw people commenting on this. You can't tell what's worse, especially with Kamala. Which one is worse? Is it the fact that she couldn't even be bothered, neither of them could be bothered to mention Memorial Day in their tweets? Or the fact that they actually had the audacity to post pictures of themselves? And she posting this picture <laughs> of herself smiling so broadly, as if, as if we have her to thank for the three-day weekend. As if they got a day taken off of our work week through coronavirus stimulus or something like that. Just, thanks it, to their benevolence, we slaves can get a couple of days off. We eternal, eternal praise and gratitude to... President Biden and Kamala Harris and Vice President Kamala Harris, the illegitimate leaders of this country since November 3rd, 2020. It, it really is. It, it's something that needs to be said because it is indicative of the shift in our country, in our culture, certainly being led now from the top down against president. Again, President Trump was fighting against this culture shift as long as he could for four years, but he was just one man. He could only do so much. And when you've got voter fraud and all of big tech and all of wall street and everything else and the media all against you you could not you could only get so far i, so, I would disagree with that i don't think that uh, president trump actually recognized the the cultural shift for what it was i think he was still in many ways uh still thinking that this was kind of the america of the early 2000s the america of the 80s in that era i don't think he realized that the, what, what we're going to talk about during the main topic, which is the uh, basically the anti-colonial uh, dogma that infested the left. I think he didn't realize that until his last year in, in office. I was going to say, yeah, definitely in his last year, he kind of turned it up to 11 with a focus on critical race theory and calling out Black Lives Matter for what they really are. But it just it got even worse. It really showed itself for the ugliness that it really is, that the, the fundamental anti-American roots of these beliefs and of these policies that they are pushing – 
And nowhere was that more prominent than in their priorities with what they celebrated. As we already talked about, of course, Biden basically just said, stay cool this weekend. Harris said, enjoy the long weekend. They spent just as much time, they, sp- they spent more time this weekend, or uh, today, technically, Tuesday. They spent more time commemorating the Tulsa race massacre than they spent commemorating Memorial Day. Now, of course, Biden today, uh, Tuesday, the day after Memorial Day, did give a speech in Tulsa on the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, which took place in 1921. I got to be honest, first and foremost, I honestly, prior to last year, it was first kind of mentioned last year at the height of the Black Lives Matter race riots following George Floyd's accidental fentanyl overdose death. I'll be honest, prior to that, I had never heard of this event before in my life. I never was taught about this in school, and I went to private and public schools alike, even in college. I never heard about it, never learned about this. And yet suddenly since Black Lives Matter's resurgence, or I guess second or third resurgence after Floyd, they are really promoting this, this Tulsa race massacre, and with it, I guess Juneteenth, the holiday that commemorates it supposedly. I gotta be honest, I have no idea what this is or why they're pushing it so hard. Jacob, can you enlighten us a little bit on what this whole thing is about? So Black Lives Matter and their uh, associated activists would say that the reason why you don't know what Juneteenth is and the reason why you'd never studied about this in school is evidence that America is a white supremacist country. Oh, clearly, yeah. That black history has been suppressed and that we don't know anything about what happened to black people in our history. It's not like we don't know about slavery or Jim Crow or segregation. No, no, no. But this one particular incident that happened 100 years ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But this this was why I had to talk about this on the show. And this was a story. When I saw this headline, I had to do a double take. I could not believe this was real. But this is absolutely hysterical to me. This is from PJ Media, which is really an underrated website, let's be honest. They provide some great commentary. Headline, <clears throat> quote, Event commemorating Tulsa race massacre canceled after survivors demand $1 million each to appear, end quote. Going down to the actual body of the article, it says, quote, Attorneys representing the survivors, these are survivors of the actual incident 100 years ago, Attorneys representing the survivors had originally agreed to a $100,000 appearance fee for each survivor and $2 million in reparations. Then suddenly, attorneys upped the appearance fee to $1 million and seed money for the Reparations Commission demand to $50 million. <laughs> I mean, you, you literally are about to get a $2,100,000 payday each, and yet they, they couldn't, they had to exponent, ask for exponentially more. They had to ask for 25 times more in reparations, and they had to ask for 10 times more in just the appearance fee to appear at this event. I... This absolutely blew my mind. We've talked about reparations, of course, on this podcast in the many ways in which it is already being implemented by the Biden administration. And we talked about before how the problem with reparations, and this goes for anybody, not just African-Americans. This goes for white Americans and Asian Americans, especially in today's society, this ultra-materialistic society in which we live. If anybody was given $100,000, a million dollars, $2 million, $50 million in reparations, most of them would blow it in a week. Like, and then they would come back asking for more. It's just like the farm or the uh, the farm reparations to yep. black farmers. They're going to have to they have to keep doing that every ten years. They already passed these uh, these uh, the compensation bill like in twenty ten. Well, actually, they've done it three times. They did it in ninety eight, did it in twenty ten. Now they just did it again. So every ten years, they got to keep doing it over and over again. Yeah, and the article actually does go out of its way to note that the um, the survivors in question here are some of them. Uh, 
yeah, this event was 100 years ago, so this was my first thought was, so how old are these survivors? Where They must have been like pretty much babies or, or toddlers when this happened. One of the survivors, Hughes Van Ellis, is 100. His sister, Viola Fletcher, is 107. And another survivor, Lessie Benningfield Randall, 106. The article notes, quote, they have been silent during the dispute, allowing their lawyer to do all the talking, end quote. Gee, that sounds kind of familiar. That takes me back to something I talked about in episode 10, my red pill journey, when Trayvon Martin's mom was completely silenced by her attorney, Benjamin Crump, who basically did all of the flamethrowing and race-baiting rhetoric in the media for her. And I'm willing, I'm willing to bet it's probably the interference from the lawyers and their handlers in the quote-unquote civil rights movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, who are making these demands. The survivors were probably perfectly fine with that money that they were offered originally, but the lawyers are now. I guess the lawyers decided they could make a real payday out of this, so they want to get even more money. But it's just – it's absolutely unreal. It's, it's disgusting. But again, the, what really bothers me is that this whole thing, this whole show of the Tulsa Race Massacre 100-year anniversary is being propped up by – the current administration, Biden and Harris, again, they spent just as much time commemorating this as they did paying tribute to our fallen soldiers, to our fallen troops over the course of our history. And that it's it's reprehensible, but it's nothing new. We shouldn't be shocked by it anymore at this point. Well, what's interesting is Carlos Moreno, he wrote a book on the called The Victory of Greenwood about this, uh, about the aftermath of this massacre. And he explored how the neighborhood had a second renaissance because it was called uh, the Black, uh, Black Wall Street, Wall Street. Yep. Uh, before that. So this is from NBC News. Says Moreno explores how the neighborhood had a second renaissance led by black Tulsans after the massacre, rebuilding even bigger than before. So this the, the destruction of this neighborhood didn't completely drive all the black Tulsans away and didn't cause their neighborhood to become a ghetto. They came back and they re rebuilt even bigger and better than before. I mean, if you put this in perspective, think about how many blocks the average hurricane season does. I mean, it's it's. This was far less than what the average hurricane season does. People come back, they rebuild. But because they can use the, the black intelligentsia in this country, see is an opening to use this for reparations, which is really just a way to entrench their position as the nation's new elite, the nation's new up-and-coming elite. Then they're using this obscure event in the small – really, Tulsa was tiny at the time, this tiny city of Tulsa 100 years ago to try to push for reparations. But it's not like they uh, destroyed this black section of Tulsa and it never came back. I mean, according to his book, it, according to Moreno's book, it came back even bigger and better than before. W.B. Dubois, he visited Tulsa in 1926, five years after this event occurred, which, by the way, they call it a race massacre. It was a race riot. It was basically a race war between white people and black people. White people were more numerous in Tulsa. They won, and they basically took total victory by demolishing the black community. But W.B. Dubois, he visited five years later, and he wrote, quote, Five little years ago, fire and blood and robbery leveled it to the ground. Scars are there, but the city is impudent and noisy. It believes in itself. Thank God for the grit of Black Tulsa. So this is just five years after that riot took place. So now here we are, uh, you know, 95 years after he visited Tulsa, and we're talking about this as if it occurred in 2016. But of course, they're going to argue that once the once the highways were built, like once the interstate system was built, then it, it further displaced black communities. Oh, it's, it's oh yeah, always highways something. are racist. Yeah. yeah, highways are racist. Interstates are racist. It's always going to be something. Always, at the end of the day, this uh, amounts to a push for reparations so the black elite can get a nice pay cut. Black lawyers can get a nice pay cut out of it. That's that's really all it boils down to. And the actual survivors are completely exploited in the process. And well, those that, that are alive. I mean, 99.999% of these people have already oh, passed away. Exactly, yeah. that is, And that's Black Lives Matter in a nutshell. They they would rather not focus on the part where they came back and rebuilt and had a comeback stronger than ever before. They'd rather focus on the perpetual victimhood narrative, which 
rather is indicative of how they feel about America as a whole. They would rather not talk about how America did ultimately end slavery and Jim Crow and segregation. They'd rather focus on the fact that it happened rather than the fact that it was fixed. Right. So it's just really it's just a big racket for reparations. That's at the end of the day, that's what it amounts to. They're trying to uh, tr to prick the you know prick the conscience of white America to convince white America to open their bank accounts and give over money to the black elite. And speaking of an economic racket. Uh, Jacob, what's the latest going on on the immigration front in the United States today? So one of the things that most American conservatives focus on when they're talking about foreigners coming into this country and taking Americans' jobs are blue-collar jobs. They, uh, they talk about the construction jobs that are going to foreigners. They talk about uh, you know uh, electricians, plumbers, and really that's – if you go around the D.C. area, every single blue-collar worker – it's hard to find an American blue-collar worker around D.C. because they're all foreigners. People who mostly live around Washington, D.C., New York City, their attitude is you've got the, progress, the socially progressive white folks at the top, their socially progressive black allies, and then underneath them you have the foreign workers who come in and do the blue-collar jobs. And then beneath them you have the native-born Americans who are essentially just living off of welfare. And that's how, that's how they basically want to keep that system in check by putting American citizens, native-born American citizens on the government dole just to keep them happy and satisfied, and they want to bring in uh, people from countries that aren't used to a very high standard of living to do the jobs, like uh, to be nannies, to be construction workers, to be plumbers, electricians. They want them to do all of this stuff. But it's not just blue-collar workers that are being screwed over by foreign workers coming into this country. The Chamber of Commerce loves foreign workers for white-collar jobs because those jobs especially command a much higher salary. And if they can hire someone who's used to, to working for you know, four or five hundred dollars a month. If they can come, if they can hire them to do a job for sixty, seventy thousand a year that an American would typically require one hundred twenty thousand for, they're more than happy to do that, and they're more than happy to go to court to make sure they can continue to do that. It says executives with Google, Amazon, Apple, IBM, HP, the Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, the Microsoft Corporation, Twitter, Facebook, CEO Mark Zuckerberg's FWD.us, Michael Bloomberg's New American Economy, and other corporations have filed an amicus brief in a lawsuit to ask a federal court to keep more than 90,000 foreign visa holders in the U.S. workforce. All the usual suspects. Oh, of course, of course. You know, all, all, the, uh, tip, all these American companies that have benefited from the United States of America have benefited from American universities and American labor. The lawsuit was first filed in 2015 by Save Jobs USA, a group of former American workers at Southern California Edison who had their jobs outsourced to foreign visa workers to block the Obama administration from giving work permits to H-4 visa holders who are the spouses of H-1B visa workers. So you got H-1B visa workers coming over, their spouses come with them, and now their spouses are wanting high-paying jobs as well. So that's where the H-4 visa comes in. It says the outsourced American workers argue that the executive action by Obama wrongly gives the Department of Homeland Security the authority to provide work permits to tens of thousands of H-4 visa holders. Congress, they argue, did not authorize such authority to DHS, and thus the agency does not have the authority to provide the work permits. So Obama basically just gave DHS the, the authority to hand out these spouses jobs, high-paying jobs in the U.S. economy even though the American people through their representatives never voted for this. Today, close to 100,000 foreign spouses of H-1B visa holders have American jobs in the U.S. labor market thanks to the H-4 visa work permit authorization that the Obama administration began. That has been continued throughout the Trump and Biden administrations. The cheap foreign labor pipeline, Save Jobs USA argues, unjustly increases foreign labor market competition against America's white-collar workforce who are forced to compete for jobs against such visa holders. 
The corporate alliance between tech conglomerates, the Chamber of Commerce, and the outsourcing industry, though, is hoping to convince the court that throwing out work permits for H-4 visa holders will undercut the American economy. Think about the logic that they're using. They're not arguing that the Obama administration had the authority to delegate this to DHS. They're not arguing that, yes, the president does have the constitutional authority to give the Department of Homeland Security authorization to supply the spouses of H-1B visa holders with permits to work. The Constitution doesn't even come into this discussion. Their argument is this could hurt the American economy. This could hurt GDP if we force all of these spouses of H-1B visa holders to quit their jobs and we have to hire higher wage Americans because this would hurt GDP and it would hurt their own pocketbooks. Then the court should rule against Save Jobs USA, which is just it's just bizarre. And it really it speaks to the American mentality. This has really been the case ever since. Really, Brown versus Board of Education, when the, when they use psychology to argue in favor of constitutional law rather than using the text of the Constitution. So now it's just pragmatism. We just argue for on what is just and what is fair, what is pragmatic, never mind what the Constitution says, never mind what the law actually says. Uh, you know, it just they've even they've gone so far, they feel like they don't even have to rely on the Constitution. at all. they can just argue, well, this will hurt the American economy. And it's just like whenever Amy Coney Barrett was in her confirmation hearings, they were arguing the Democrats were arguing that because the ACA would be up for review at the Supreme Court, it would be dangerous to put Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court because she could rule against the ACA and that could cost millions of people their health care coverage. And even in, they were even grilling her about that, about you know, bringing up sob stories about people who couldn't afford health care, who received health care through the ACA. But when you're a judge, that's irrelevant. It's completely real. The Constitution doesn't say anything about like, oh, a law is constitutional if certain people benefit from it. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Correct. If the, so if in the, the case of the ACA, if a person is – they you know have a legitimate sob story, they go to the representative. The representative goes before the president, before Congress and argues for legislation. OK, they did that. They passed the ACA. If the Supreme Court finds the ACA unconstitutional – it then falls on those advocates to go back to Congress and argue for Congress to craft something that is constitutional. But because we've assigned legislative powers to the courts, we've now reached the point to where progressives aren't even using the Constitution anymore. They're just completely stepping over it. You don't have to, that's why you don't have to do away with the Constitution to do away with the Constitution. You can just uh, create a legal culture in this country. To where whenever you go before judges, you don't even have to mention the Constitution. You can just bring up sob stories and argue, well, this will hurt people who need jobs. This will hurt people who need health care. Well, you know, look, if, if I'm a judge, I'm looking – I'm thinking, OK, that's that's terrible. I hope you go bring that before your representative in Congress, but it's my job to interpret the Constitution. It's the line from Spider-Man. I missed the part where that's my problem. <laughs> correct, correct. So uh, – the article goes on, the H-4 visa, like the optional practical training program and the H-1B visa program, helped flood the U.S. white-collar labor market by providing a constant flow of foreign workers to which corporations can outsource jobs rather than hiring Americans. In many cases, American workers who already hold the job are merely fired, replaced, and forced to train their foreign replacements. And uh, they'll do this by saying, well, you know, if you want your severance package, you're going to have to train your replacement. And it just goes to show that the greatest threat to the American job market, at least the, the job market for American citizens, is not socialism. It's American corporations, the very entities that are supposed to be given jobs to Americans. It's corporate fascism, as we like to call it here on The Right Take. Correct, correct. And, the, of course, uh, maximizing prof corporate profits is all they care about. 
And if they can bring in as many cheap, as much cheap foreign labor as they possibly can to drive down the cost of wages and drive up their compensation packages, are going to do it. Just like with uh, what we brought up last week with Bill Crystal. You know, every about every four generations, you Americans, he said, get lazy, they get complacent, and they don't go to work. They don't. They just don't want to work hard. So you need to bring in new workers. You need to constantly bring in a fresh supply of labor. But here's the thing: uh, America. The story of America isn't just a story of constant toil and hard work. Yes, early generations of Americans worked hard, and the Great Depression Americans worked hard. But they did that not only so they themselves could have a better life than they had yesterday. They did it so their children could have a better life than they had. They did it so their grandchildren could have a better life than they had. But the mentality of these corporations is let's keep flooding the market with dirt cheap labor so that future generations of Americans don't have to have a better life than their parents and grandparents. Because the reason, the only way that your the future generations are going to have a better life is if you increase productivity. You increase productivity through automation. You increase productivity through innovation. But if you're bringing in constant foreign cheap labor, there's no reason to innovate. There's no reason to automate. So that, you know, that ability of future generations to accomplish more with less goes away because you've constantly got new slave labor that's coming into your corporations. And that's another thing I never understood too, this argument. Yeah, and you see this even from so yeah, from certainly from so-called conservatives, like one example being uh that loser at the Washington Examiner, Brad Palumbo, who keeps saying, oh, well, we need more immigrants because American birth rates are following and our, our fertility rate is going down and our population is growing dangerously low. And other people pointing out on social media, and I agree with this assessment, why is that a bad thing? Does our Why does our population have to be full at all times? Why do we have to have absolute 100% population capacity at all times? Is that is that – I miss that requirement. Like why do we need that? Certainly in our economy where, yeah, you pointed out automation is possible. It, can, it is already being done in a lot of fast food restaurants and uh, grocery stores and big retailers like Walmart and Target. Why do we, why must our population be kept at absolute 100% capacity if, even if that includes, you know, replacing it with foreigners? Yeah. I mean, Switzerland and Sweden and Norway and Holland, they do just fine with small countries with small populations. It's not, it's not a problem for them. They have a higher standard of living than America does. Fortunately, though, there is some good news on the immigration front on that same note. This is from, funny enough, I just dunked on them, but this is where I first saw the story, in the Washington Examiner. Headline, Supreme Court shuts down attempt to treat asylum seekers' testimony as credible. The Supreme Court unanimously found that a previous ruling from the California-based U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, a.k.a. the most far left of all the circuit courts, had incorrectly ruled that in immigration cases, non-citizens' testimonies must be treated as credible or true. The court vacated the Ninth Circuit's decision and sent it back to lower courts for further consideration. So two things. One, as the headlines, as the article says, that is a unanimous ruling from the Supreme Court. All nine, including the three lefty justices, which is astounding to me. But second, that's a big deal that now we, the immigration courts no longer have to take illegal aliens at their word. Because we know a lot of them are lying. A lot of them are lying about being refugees from a war-torn country. A lot of them are just coming over here because they want free stuff. That Certainly a lot of the adults lie about the kids coming with them and saying, oh yeah, these are my children, these are my children, when they're really just coyotes and they're smuggling children, make it look like it's a family. And this is really important. It's, it's certainly not a massive victory, but it is an important victory nonetheless. And little things like this that, again, are being held up in the courts, which is the last line of defense at this point, where, again, Thanks to President Trump and and to his credit, Mitch McConnell, while he was Senate Majority Leader, give him credit for this, for holding up all those judicial nominations in the last two years of Obama's presidency to fill hundreds, literally hundreds of vacancies in the federal judiciary across the country. And we're now kind of seeing the, the fruits of that in the Biden presidency. 
Well, for our main topic today, we're going to discuss yesterday, which was, of course, one of the best holidays of the year. If you're an American, it's the day we uh, we honor those who gave their lives for this country. I had a pretty good day. I went with some friends to Mount Vernon and had a nice little cookout. Uh, really just enjoying the freedoms we have to be in America and to be able to enjoy our lives and be able to celebrate those who sacrificed for us to have this enjoyment. Well, before we get into the meat of our main topic, I think it is necessary for people kind of know how things got started. So just not to take too much time, we're just going to give a brief history of this particular holiday. Memorial Day is celebrated, of course, as everyone knows, the last Monday of May. It was originally known as Decoration Day because, of course, the grave sites were decorated by people who wanted to honor the fallen dead. It originated immediately after the Civil War. It's at, right after the the veterans came back, they immediately began to organize Decoration Days at the Civil War cemeteries. The official first recorded uh, instance of this happening was in Waterloo, New York in 1866. And in fact, when Congress decided to make this a national holiday in the 1960s, they designated Waterloo, New York as the, the official site of its creation from May 5th, 1866. On May 5th, 1868, General John Logan, who was the uh, leader of an organization for Northern Civil War veterans, he called for a national day of remembrance that month. Quote, the 30th of May, 1868 is designated for the purpose of strewing with flowers or otherwise decorating the graves of comrades who died in defense of their country during the late rebellion and whose bodies now lie in almost every city, village, and hamlet, churchyard in the land. And for, for those of you around the D.C. area, you'll recognize the name uh, General John Logan. Logan Circle in D.C. is named for him. He was a he actually he was a senator, I believe, from Iowa. I believe he after the Civil War, he became an Iowan senator, moved to D.C. And of course, he has a statue, uh, an equestrian statue of there in the middle of Logan Circle in the heart of D.C. So in the North, it became known as Decoration Day all through the late 1800s. The South, of course, did not celebrate it because the, the purpose of Decoration Day was to celebrate the fallen Union soldiers. The South, of course, would not celebrate a holiday that was dedicated to their enemies. On this very first Decoration Day, General James Garfield, an eventual president of the United States, he gave a speech at Arlington National Cemetery that was attended by 5,000 participants who decorated the graves of the 20,000 Civil War soldiers buried there. It eventually became a national holiday after World War I, once the North and the South joined together to fight a common enemy. Eventually, colloquially, it became known as Memorial Day. And in 1968, Congress passed the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, which established the last Monday in May as Memorial Day, whereas beforehand it was always on May 30th, um, which was where uh, the date that General Logan established for it to be. And, of course, the purpose of establishing on the last Monday was so that people could have a long weekend. And, of course, that's the what, that's what Kamala Harris celebrates is the long weekend. But, uh, so, of course, they made it a federal holiday at that point. But kind of like Thanksgiving, Americans celebrated it before it became an official federally recognized holiday. But, of course, as we've discussed on this show, and most conservatives in America right now are very saddened by what the what the Biden administration has been doing to the military that focuses more on neo-Marxist racial politics. And uh, just as another another black pill, if you will, Robert Wilkie, former secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs, recently mentioned that Democrats are trying to remove the words from Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address from the VA's motto. The current VA motto is to fulfill President Lincoln's promise to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan by serving and honoring the men and women who are America's veterans. And, of course, that's based on a specific quote from Lincoln's second inaugural address where he said, with malice toward none, with charity of all, yada, yada, yada. Well, several Democrats and even several Republicans are supporting legislation to rewrite the VA's motto to remove the pronouns him and his to include in order to be more inclusive of women and LGBTQ veterans because him and his is too exclusive. 
So uh, there's actually been a House and a Senate bill that has uh, that have been introduced called Honoring All Veterans Act of 2021. The mission statement of the department shall be as follows to fulfill President Lincoln's promise to care for those who shall have borne the battle and for their families, caregivers and survivors. So we got a little they them approach here to the to the pronouns. You got to love how they always mask this insidious effort to rewrite our history. They mask it with, oh, this is looking out for everybody. This is including everybody. Like They make it sound like, oh, inclusivity is a perfectly justifiable reason for rewriting American history or erasing history. Well, case. it's just like Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Loheimer's book that we covered two episodes ago. That's why he named his book Irresistible Revolution, because they have created a social revolution that is irresistible because you can't who, – who wants to be against diversity? Because diversity, equity, diversity, and inclusion, those are the three buzzwords that they use to ram through their neo-Marxist agenda. All so, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I mean it's just – and so if somebody – if you're going to argue, well, no, I'm against that, they would ask, well, why? Do, do you hate non-white people? You must be a white supremacist. This is like Biden at, in Tulsa. He claimed that the number one national security threat is not ISIS. It's not al-Qaeda. Uh, pr primarily because we've already destroyed those organizations, but he argued that it is white supremacy. But our president believes that white supremacy is the most lethal threat threatening our nation right now, and the reason for that is very, very simple: it's to be, it's to shut down all dissent and all opposition to this neo-Marxist agenda that pushes for diversity, inclusion, and equity. Because if you come and you say I'm against them pushing for diversity, inclusion, and equity in the military, any program that has those buzzwords and it should be immediately scrapped people well, are going to ask why are you a white supremacist because they've been indoctrinated to believe that white supremacy is the most lethal threat to our nation right now well we've said it before that you know this is very much kind of like what the neocons did during the bush presidency if anyone dared to speak out against the war in iraq and afghanistan they'd say oh you must hate the troops if you're against the war you hate the troops right you obviously hate the troops hey this guy's a troop hater over here that, that's what they would do they would so, and it's the same thing here i've simply been thinking in regards to the diversity thing don't even give them the chance to ask you the question first ask them the question the ultimate way to shut down this diversity argument not that arguments matter to these people but simply ask them what what is the inherent good of diversity what makes diversity automatically good and they won't be able to answer the question because there is no intrinsic value in diversity there is no there is nothing that says oh america is automatically a better place if it's more diverse even if that diversity includes immigrants coming over across the border illegally including palestinian immigrants who come over here illegally like we talked about last episode just so they can beat jewish americans in the streets because they don't like what israel is doing to hamas so it's it's they they Say it enough times and they drill this into your head in colleges. I experienced this in college that diversity is good. Diversity is good. I'm the first black woman from uh, from South America to hold this position like that. They always do that so that they get the blind clapping seals applause and nobody thinks to ask, wait, why is this good? Why are we automatically clapping for this? A friend of mine said it very well back in the college Republicans. Diversity is not an achievement, but they make it sound like it is. Well, for this has been going on, like you mentioned, even back when we were in college, it's been going on for two decades, and conservatives never pushed back. We kept hearing over and over again, diversity is our strength, diversity is our strength. All throughout the Obama administration, we constantly heard diversity is our strength in the military and uh, civil service and anything in corporations, of course, were adopting the, the messaging as well. I would say certainly we're about to enter – we're entering the month of June, which uh, I hate to put another damper on people's parades, but – it's Pride Month, guys, so now every corporation you can think of, every brand, is going to change their avatar to the rainbow flag 
They're going to talk about how great Pride is. They make it seem normal just by repeating it over and over again. I, who was it? Was it Stalin or someone who said a lie repeated often enough becomes the truth? But yeah, so that's what they do. And they've been doing it. And because no one dares to question it, why is it good to be diverse? If we just push back with these kinds of questions, then they, we won't win them over, but it will expose them as having no answer and thus having no justification. Well, it's because people understand that it's more advantageous to be a minority. If you can create some kind of minority class for yourself, if you can be a part of a minority that isn't a straight white male, you are going to have greater advancement in oh, society. It, You're pays, gonna have, it pays to be oppressed. Exactly. In, in fact, uh, Lloyd Austin, who is the secretary – who is the uh, – uh, Dang it, what do you Secretary call? of Defense. And uh, who is the Secretary of Defense? They interviewed, CNN interviewed him about the conservative criticism about critical race theory being in the military, about all these diversity and inclusion courses. And of course, obviously, he defended it. He says basically, you know, I don't, I don't care what anybody says. We're, uh, we're going to push to be the most diverse military we can possibly be. We're going to make sure we represent all Americans. But this is, this is the argument they use. They argue that our, and I remember I was actually had considered applying for the Foreign Service at some point. Before I found out that they move you around every three years. So as soon as you get used to a country for three years, you're immediately ripped up and moved somewhere else. I was like, no, I'm, I'm not interested in that. But as I was considering uh, going into the Foreign Service, I remember sitting through a Foreign Service interest class because they went around to different – this was in Nashville. They went around to different cities because they argued that they wanted to get um, diverse Americans from different parts of the country. And I'm thinking, okay, that makes sense. You want to go to different – you want to go to Wyoming. You want to go to California. Make sure that people from all over the country – it's not just one geographical region that are going to the Foreign Service. But somewhat, one of their speakers made, said something during that interest meeting that actually made me stop and think. They said, we want our Foreign Service, we want our civil service to look like America. In other words, we want the people in there to look like – to physically look like – have the phenotype of most Americans. But – I'm thinking to myself, and Lloyd Austin, he said this again. It's another, again, like it's groupthink. You got, they're so indoctrinated. If you hear one civil servant talk, they're going to use the same words that every other civil servant is going to talk because they're, they are literally programmed like robots to just spit out the same buzzwords, the same phrases uh, to, in order to keep their job, to show that they're on the team, to show that they've actually absorbed the indoctrination. But Austin was saying that he wants the, the America to look, he wants the American military to look like America. I'm thinking to myself, you don't look like America. Like you look like 14 percent of America. So if we took you at your word, we would have to have a white man as the defense secretary because white people make up two thirds of the country or even 70 percent of the country. If you want to add in like Middle Easterners and people of Hispanic origin who are white there, that's more like 70 to 75 percent of the country. But he's arguing that he wants the military to look like America, but he himself represents a tiny, tiny minority of Americans. An even tinier minority when you consider like less than one percent of Americans who were prior to being secretary of defense were filthy rich executives with one of the world's leading uh, arms manufacturers, one correct, of defense correct. contractors, Raytheon. Uh, yeah, so both in ethnicity and in, uh, in income, he doesn't represent America. But the, the reason I bring that out is because the military isn't supposed to look like America. It's not supposed to represent America the way Americans look. The military is supposed to provide defense for the United States. It's supposed to be a fighting force. It's supposed to be a very elite fighting force of the strongest, the fastest, most agile, the toughest warriors. I mean, it just occurred to me, you're talking about it, putting it that way. If the military really looked like most of America, 
We would be so screwed if China or Russia invaded us, let's be honest. They would, it would be like, you know, lots of like the fast food eating Americans who like. <laughs> well, in that, oh. in that regard, did you see some of the National Guard troops posted around D.C. right after the Capitol riot? When they were protecting Biden's inauguration, yeah. Yeah, in that sense, we, or, <laughs> or at least the local National Guard and uh, at least the National Guard troops they brought in to protect the, to protect the city from the zombie apocalypse. They, uh, that we protect the most popular president of all time. Yeah, unfortunately, they actually. Actually, do kind of look like America and 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 the the wide as far as the fast food regard goes. That was well, a, that's the reserve of the National Guard. You know, they did not bring out. They didn't. They, it's thankfully they weren't deploying SEAL Team Six to protect the, allegedly the most popular president in American history who needs troops to guard his inauguration. Well, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure they had uh, active duty troops there. It wasn't just National Guard troops. I mean, it was National Guard from different states, but I'm pretty sure they brought in a contingent of active duty troops that aren't actually part of the National Guard. But even so, even if you are in the reserves, it, it's kind of a bad look if you're, you know, pudgy and chubby sitting there, look like you couldn't actually run a 50-yard dash without falling over. And yet the biggest scandal to emerge out of pictures of the National Guard around the Capitol was the one who was caught reading Ayn Rand in the uh, Capitol Rotunda. Yeah. They're like, oh, this must be an extremist. That must be a domestic terrorist. Fire that one. But one thing when you think about it is should conservatives go into the military at this point? And th this is what a lot of people argue, you know, don't go into the military. Whatever you do, do not sign up. My argument would be if you make that argument, you've also got to make that argument for every other institution at this point in time. Yeah. Because every institution is adopting the include the uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion mantra. Every single corporate, every major corporation is adopting the same so the every every single corporation is adopting the same neo-Marxist attitude, the same ideology. So if you don't go into the military, okay, well you're going to go work in the private sector unless you're going to go start your own business or work for somebody who is a conservative and rejects all this stuff. Then you're you know you're kind of you're kind of screwed in that regard. I mean, you could be facing lawsuits that could completely ruin your company. So this is one thing that you got to understand. A lot of these corporations don't necessarily agree with this agenda, but because they understand that. The Biden administration and his bureaucracy runs things. And even under Trump, you had the bureaucracy didn't really answer to Trump. They just an they answered to the same ideology. Corporations understand that if they don't want the federal government coming down on them for discrimination, they have to pretend like they are woke. They have to pretend like they agree with all of this stuff, even if they don't agree with it. So if people argue, well, I don't want to go into the military because they're going to force me to sit down and, you know, put me through all these diversity trainings that are essentially just hate whitey trainings. Well, you got to think about what, where are you going to go in five years where you're not going to find that? I don't see this. Uh, the, the reason why I don't see this turn around overnight is because most conservatives don't understand what's going on and they don't know how to fight back at this point. I feel I believe eventually we will win. We're going to run this country according to our values, but it's going to be a decade. This is something we got to understand. At this least is, a decade. That's th being generous, honestly. But, but I mean, I think if, if conservatives uh, can educate themselves, the 2030s will be ours. But we have to understand the 2020s will be theirs. The rest of this decade for the most part, is going to be miserable for conservatives, for people who love this country, who love its history. And if conservatives are going to thrive, not just survive, that's the thing. A lot of conservatives think that we're just going to survive. You know, I'm just going to go live out in the woods and live in a log cabin and chop wood and live off the land. That's not realistic for most people. I mean, if you've got a bunch of money, so you've got, you've got a big stash of cash, I guess maybe you can go start out like that. Most people can't afford to do that. So we have to recognize that for con American conservatives, the 2020s are going to be pretty harsh. Now, you can still make it, but that's the thing. Amer American conservatives are going to have to understand that if you want to live in a country that you want to live in, you want your children and grandchildren to grow up in the America that you believe in, 
you're going to have to be willing to endure a miserable decade in order to make the change these changes occur institutionally it's not enough just to elect donald trump as president you have to overturn the apple cart you have to get somebody in there who's going to completely clean out all this muck and mire in the federal bureaucracy you have to line up dozens hundreds hundreds of people if not thousands who are ready to go join those bureaucracies and be the foot soldiers you know trump can do whatever trump can do from the oval office but if you still have hundreds of deep state swamp rats in every level of the federal agencies and bureaucracies then it's meaningless right so that that's the reason why and that's that's why conservatives should not boycott the military they should not boycott federal employment just like they should not boycott universities a lot of people are arguing well just don't send your kids to universities I would argue send your kids to universities if they need a university degree for what they want to do in life, but make sure you have brainwashed them, you have indoctrinated them before they go. That's and the you problem. let them know not to buy any of that garbage that they're spewing. But see, that's the problem. That was the problem with so many of our previous generations. So you know, they grew up in a time to where yeah, the universities were a little left leaning, but it wasn't in your face authoritarian. Maoism, like it wasn't Hate yourself because you're white nonsense. Yeah, it wasn't like Soviet style anti-white racism. It was just kind of you know a little center left. Like okay, we'll just uh, just sit through the class, get your degree, get out and start a business or go to work, get a, get a good paying job. Unfortunately, parents just assumed that their kids were just going to go to college to get a degree so they could go to work and get a job. Parents can't assume that nowadays. Nowadays, you got to assume that if you send your your kid to college, it's essentially the same way as sending them to college in China. Imagine if you were a Chinese dissident and you're sending your kid to college, they're going to receive the same kind of indoctrination in American universities that they would if they were a dissident in China. Or let's go a step further. Imagine you are a minority in, um, I don't know, let's say, uh, let's say an Eastern European country in between the world war. If you were, imagine you were a German minority in Czechoslovakia in between World War One and World War Two. You went to school, and your, if you sent your kids to school, which you had to, I'm sure public school was was a mandatory. If you sent your kids to school, they were going to be indoctrinated to hate themselves for being German, and the the vice, you know, the exact opposite was true, depending on the country. If you send your kids to school and they believe a heresy that the government and does not believe, they are going to be berated for believing something that is heresy. So you have to understand that if you're going to send your kids to college. That's great, but they need to understand this stuff before they go in. The same is true with the military. The same is true with corporations. So conservatives should not just sit back and say, well, I don't, I can't support the military. Well, at that point, if you don't support the military, you're in a really, really bad place because guess who's filling up the military? It's not conservatives' kids. Now it's the people it's who the, actually buy into this. It's agenda. the girls who are being raised by lesbian moms, like in that uh, army recruiting video. Right, and those girls. Uh, yeah, we may laugh at that, but I'll guarantee you, those girls wouldn't have any trouble putting a bullet through the head of uh, a MAGA supporter. She literally says in the video that she's in charge of our missile defense system, and I'm like, I do know that. The video is funny, but then when she says that line, that scares me. We do not want people like that in charge of our missile defense system. Exactly, and so for that reason, yes, even though understand administrations come and go, we. Still still have the right to vote in this country. So just because we have an administration in that's completely revamping the military and re-indoctrinating the troops does not mean that conservatives should stop going to the military. If anything, this should encourage more conservatives to go into the military. More young conservatives should sign up for the military. Yeah, you might have to keep your mouth shut about certain things. You'll just have to pretend. You'll have to uh, pretend like you're a neo-Marxist, kind of like Chinese. I'm sure there's a lot of dissidents in the Chinese military that just have to go along with the flow, pretend like they're Marxists. But understand that administrations come and go. Secretaries of Defense come and go. It's not always going to be like this. And when it, it comes time for to take over the government with a new uh, with a new administration, 
it, it would be good to have people in office in the bureaucracies and the military who are f very happy to shed themselves of all this equity, diversity, and inclusion crap. It's the ultimate debate, like going back to college, the question of whether or not conservative students or at least students who don't buy into this race-baiting nonsense, do they keep their mouths shut, keep their heads down, be a little good little boy and girl and get the good grades to then pass and use that degree to their advantage after the fact? Or do they stand up and voice their opinions and defy it there and make a stand and feel good about themselves, maybe get some support in a viral video or something, but then lose their grades and get tanked out? I think certainly with regards to the military, absolutely it should be the former. You should, yeah, join, and it's got to be tough, but keep your mouth shut. Don't question it. Pretend to go along with it. But deep down inside, you are against it, and for all you know, dozens of your squad mates around you could be on the same in the same boat as you, and you find that out over time, and you work through that. Well, in closing, I do want us to look at the why Kamala made that uh, sent out that tweet encouraging people to enjoy the long weekend. I think with we a picture to, of herself. Yes, I think we need to ask ourselves why, because a lot of conservatives they they're just they're tribal Republicans. And uh, they watch Fox News, which is basically just Biden bashing. I mean, let's be honest. Mo it's mostly just bashing Biden. It's not really – it doesn't really get down to the nitty-gritty of, of you know ideology, what's behind these people who – why are they believing this way? So most Republicans, most conservatives, they see that and they're like, oh, well, she hates America. But, OK, why does she hate America? What's the reason behind it? What, what, can I, can I venture a guess? Go for it. She is the child of immigrants. Her father was Jamaican. Her mother is Indian. She's a first-generation American, and according to her, she grew up in an America that was still going through busing and the, the back end of segregation, and she has no stake in this country via her ancestry, and the America she has known is supposedly been out to get her based on her skin color and immigration status. She has no reason to love this country. So that's part of it because, yeah, she, she, is not, she does not see herself as ethnically American. So she has adopted the African-American ethnicity as her own, even though she is not herself African-American. Yeah, even left-wing, like, African-American activists have pointed out that she technically is not an African-American in the traditional sense. But that's that's her view personally. I think if we back up and look at this from a little bit, uh, you know, broader perspective, it, it's not just her – it's not just the United States that she has a problem with. And we saw this whenever Prince Philip died. Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States, who is Britain's number one ally, did not even send condolences to England over this, to the UK over this. Over the death of the queen's husband. Yes, she, no tweets, nothing. Complete and total silence. Now, why is that? And I would say, I would point to, for those that are wondering why she would do that, people say, oh, well, she just, uh, she, she hates America, so she hates America's traditional allies. So, uh, no, I would tie that into Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's shenanigans. They left, they left England, they came over here, and they made a big fuss about racism. They accused the – basically accused the royal family of racism. And they, they cried about it on Oprah's show of all things. Correct. At the heart of this is something that we're going to see in this next video. Uh, the campus reform did – it went around Washington, D.C. and interviewed some people in Georgetown about Memorial Day. I'm Addison Smith with Campus Reform. We are here in Washington, D.C. in honor of Memorial Day, a day where we celebrate the fallen men and women who have fought to protect this nation. But the question is, can Americans even still unite around Memorial Day? We're going to see how far they'll go. Well, they signed this petition right here to ban Memorial Day as a celebration of American imperialism. Let's see what they say. You know, we're talking about Memorial Day. Is this a holiday that you support? Is this something that you're going to be celebrating? Uh, I'm not celebrating. I don't think Memorial Day should be a thing that we celebrate personally. Okay, why not? 
Um, I feel like it's a celebration of U.S. imperialism and colonialism, personally. It's not like an attack on any individual, but more of a system. Absolutely not. Uh, I think it represents a lot of negative aspects of America and highlights something that, you know, people shouldn't necessarily be proud of. If we're going to honor and celebrate the dead, I think it should be those that lost their lives to, um, you know, genocide in America. Do you know why we celebrate Memorial Day? Um, I know it's like veterans, yeah. Do you know why we celebrate Memorial Day? Not really, no. Um, to be honest, not really. You know, I did, maybe like three years ago. Right, I mean, it's just like it's been imperialism, so, yeah. I mean. It's to remember the fallen. It's in memorial and remembrance of people who have fought for our country. There's a, actually a problem with Memorial Day, which is that it, it is kind of memorializing American imperialism and kind of glorifying it. Would you guys agree with that? Oh, probably, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Well, I have this petition here, uh, kind of along the same lines. We're trying to get support to unrecognize Memorial Day as a federal holiday. Uh, because of, you know, like you were saying, the American imperialism and the barbarism. Would, so would you be willing to sign this? Absolutely. Awesome. Would you be, would you be willing to sign in support of that, yeah. though? Yeah. Probably not, because it's one of my bank holidays, and I work at a bank, so... Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, that... I had a feeling someone was going to eventually give a response like that one. I, I had to interject here. That I was going to say... Not too long ago, I imagine a lot of young Americans would gladly keep a holiday like this for the sake of a holiday. You get a day off school, you get a day off work, but it took this long for someone to say, and even then she's in the midst of saying that, oh yeah, I want to abolish this holiday, or actually I would, but I kind of like having a day off, so it really says a lot about our society. But um, I do think we should probably rebrand Memorial Day as yeah. something else. Like, okay. let's, let's celebrate something worthwhile instead of imperialism. I have a good feeling you're going to sign this for me. For sure, I'm definitely awesome. down. Can I sign it? Yes, you can. Okay. That's amazing. How long have you been trying to do this for? Uh, we've been out here for a few hours. Okay. So no, no one wants to sign up. <laughs> that, for real? I mean, yeah. Americans really like being American. Yeah. <laughs> oh my, <laughs> newsflash! Americans like being Americans. Oh, this girl, this girl, oh man, she, she's gonna be valedictorian one day, man. I can already tell that. that is, well, she probably already was, to be honest. That, that's a 2000 IQ statement right there, that Americans love being Americans. Oh, God. I don't know why. Talk to me a little more about, you know, your, the American imperialism thing. Um, what you want to know, Leah? <laughs> hey, whatever you want to, whatever you want to tell me, I'm open ears. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, I didn't really think of in this way until I got to college and like I took women's and gender studies classes and that put me on this path where I'm like yeah like f the US <laughs> that is that is so many college students in a nutshell of course f the US I didn't really think this way until I got to college and he even had to say gender studies classes he literally said gender studies classes presumably feminist studies, if he's referring to gender, specifically feminist studies. So these feminist professors with tenure who cannot get fired no matter what they do are teaching these kids, yeah, you should hate your own country because that's... And the very next point he makes kind of emphasizes this as well. Okay. So you took those, you took the gender studies classes and you had this kind of revelation? Yeah, okay. exactly. What was it about the class? Um, kind of like, I was always into social justice, but I didn't know, I didn't have the language for that. And then they kind of, it kind of gave me that language and made me realize how everything is connected. And like, for me, like I was on this like spirituality type journey where I was like, oh, we're all one or whatever. And like what I was learning in social justice, like was the material analysis I needed to practice what I feel like 
exist on a spiritual plane in real everyday life. So, uh, there's, oh, there's so much to unpack here. Uh, again, first off, this guy, you guys got to see this video. We'll post a link to this in the description below. He's got, like, the long, the hippie hair look going for him. And here he is talking about spirituality. And, like, he's like, I, he, all he's missing is a joint. You know, <laughs> we're all connected, man. You know, spirituality. We're, we're, we're all one. We all exist on the... Oh, we all exist on the same plane, bro. Like, it's just, it's, it, oh, I, I. F America, bro. America, bro, because he is saying that, and what, what the guy, the interviewer said to him when he used that phrase, you had this awakening. That is, again, that's what they do. We said this in a previous episode. These colleges and these left-wing forces that seek to indoctrinate people like this, they frame it as you are being enlightened. Everything you thought you knew is wrong. Your parents brainwashed you. Your churches brainwashed you. Your hometowns brainwashed you. Your country, your government, your government that tells you to be patriotic has been brainwashing you. Here's the truth. Here's enlightenment. Here's you thinking for yourself as we order you to repeat and talk exactly as we talk. And But they buy into this because it's being pitched to them as you're being awakened. You're being enlightened. Oh, this is totally, this is enlightenment, right, bro. It appeals to their ego. Exactly. It appeals to their ego to think, Oh, like I'm, I'm bucking the trend, you know, you know, I'm the, the counterculture revolutionary. It's just, and again, mixing that in with his faux spirituality. I guarantee you, this guy's not spiritual. He has no idea what he's talking about. This is probably also in the same vein as like, yeah, maybe his parents took him to church. Like he went to church as a kid, but he just found like, oh yeah, man, religion is so lame, dude. It's all about spirituality. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, there's no God. We all no got to get on the interconnected plane. You know, we're all we're all in this uh, the spiritual journey together. We, have, we can feel each other's energy. Just watching this video makes me feel like I'm back in college again, and not in the good way. Very cool. Would you be down to like completely abolish the military? Uh, yes, please. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so, abolish the military no, and yeah, then, and then the military. open open our borders for let's see China, Russia, which other nations well, might they, be. They wouldn't care because they don't believe like the girl said Americans like being American. They don't see themselves as Americans. They're global citizens. They would be fine with doing away with the military because the military think about it, the military protects the United States. They don't think the United States should exist. So if they don't believe the United States should exist, why should the military exist? It doesn't serve a purpose. It doesn't fight for social justice. So why should it exist? And this brings us back to our original point, why the Biden administration is transforming the military. They don't see the military because think about it, this is the same ideology. Their thinking is the United States should not exist. It's an illegitimate country. So if the U.S. shouldn't exist, why should the military exist? And so the only logical conclusion is, well, if we're going to have a military, we need to have a force for social justice. If our military isn't going to promote uh, social justice and fight abroad for social justice, we shouldn't have a military. So that's why the Biden administration is trying to transform the military from a defense force of de from defending the nation, which they don't think should exist, into a force to fight for social justice. So basically an imperialist, a social justice imperial force. And think about it. What was the number? What was the word that they kept using over and over and over again? All those interviewees. What was the one word that they all used over and over again? Imperialism. Imperialism. How many conservatives know what imperialism is? I, and I, what they, I probably, they probably know. Here's the thing. Conservatives probably know the correct historical definition of imperialism. What these kids are talking about is not real imperialism. The, the U.S. is not an empire. 
at least not yet. And we don't go around creating colonies around the world. We don't subjugate foreign nations and treat them basically as slave satellite states. We are not an imperialist country, but in their minds, we are an imperialist country by virtue of being the world hegemon. Correct. I, sh I probably should have rephrased that as to how many conservatives actually understand what they mean when they say imperialism. Because exactly. This is something that Lo uh, Lieutenant Colonel Loheimer had pointed out when he was talking about the neo-Marxist ideologies such as critical race theory. And intersectionality. They use words that are English words. They're speaking English, but they don't mean the same thing that the dictionary gives for those words. So they're they're saying words and using words in in a context that doesn't make any sense to the average person. So the average person hears this stuff and it's like, you know, have you ever heard someone speak? You know, they're speaking English, and they're talking in an accent that you understand. But they're talking in such a way to where it sounds like they're just trying to build up their own ego, like they just like to hear themselves talk and you kind of lose interest and you kind of zone out. I've had many of, you know, I'm sure all of us have had experiences like that where like we're listening to somebody and we just lose interest and our eyes kind of glaze over and we immediately start thinking about something else. That's the intent. So when they start using these words like diversity, inclusion, imperialism, it's stuff that actually have a dictionary meaning and most Americans understand as the Webster Dictionary defines but they're not defined in, in the same way that these people are using them in. So, for instance, imperialism. When we think of imperialism, we think of like the Roman Empire, the British Empire, you know, empires that went around the world, conquered foreign peoples and colonized them. OK, so we think of the U.S. military. The U.S. military doesn't do that. The U.S. military has uh, has you could argue had did that in the Spanish-American War. They're going back even further. They're talking about the imperialism of the British Empire. When they talk about imperialism, what they mean by that is the settling of the North American continent by the English. So the English came here as an empire. They settled this land that belonged to pre-existing tribes, and then they built a country that they believe was illegitimate. That country then created a military, the U.S. military, and then the U.S. military went abroad and fought wars, which in their Marxist theory was in defense of American corporations. So every war that we fought abroad, it was all in defense of corporations. That's what they're taught in school. And so imperialism, they tied into the genocide of the Native Americans, that, which never happened. Like there was no genocide of Native American, uh, Americans. That's another thing. That's another myth that they're taught. And then they look at the U.S. military as simply an extension of that, as an extension of the British Empire going abroad, fighting wars against small, helpless, indefensible people. And so by that logic in a military in a country that shouldn't exist, you should not support that military. And the veterans who died in those wars should not be honored. Because think about it. They, they view the wars that we fought abroad the same way that we would view Nazi Germany. Should we have a holiday celebrating the martyrs of, Nazi, of Nazidom? Of course not. That's not something we should celebrate. We shouldn't have a Memorial Day for the victims of American troops who fought against the Nazis. Well, that's how they view America's military. That's how they view America's veterans. And it makes sense if you understand their worldview. The problem is so many conservatives, they're thinking they're just a bunch of goofballs. They're not going to amount to anything. But they're going to Georgetown University, okay? They're going to have a lot more money and a lot more power than your kids and your grandkids will ever have simply because your grandkids and your kids did not go to Georgetown University. I actually had a conversation with someone who uh, plays on the Georgetown baseball team. This was about a month ago. And I was just asking him about, uh, you know, what, how he, uh, you know, what he wants to do if he wants to go play in the MLB. And he mentioned that MLB scouts were interested in him, but he wasn't interested in the MLB because because of his degree, 
he's set to make $500,000 right out the gate after he graduates from Georgetown. And he's, he doesn't think the MLB could pay him that right out the gate. And so these kids, they're not going to go be unemployed in their gender studies. They're actually going to go make six figures after they graduate. And this is why conservatives need to take this anti-imperialism stuff seriously, because our universities are indoctrinating people to hate the United States. Those people graduate with very advanced degrees. They go work for the federal government. They go work in for defense contractors. They go join the military. Like a lot of these people will actually join the military that they hate. And they eventually are going to be running our lives. They are going to be the bureaucrats and the police officers and the military brass that is going to be controlling this country. So to wrap it all up, Kamala Harris does not respect Memorial Day for the same exact reason that she did not extend her condolences to the UK over Prince Philip's death. Because they hate the British Empire, they hate the British royalty for the same reason that they hate the United States. The United States, and this is something that conservatives need to understand, you cannot separate the United States from Great Britain. We are essentially the same culture. We came out of that culture. You can't separate our, just because we broke off and had our independence in 1776, we still speak English. Like we still, our language came from the UK, from what is today the UK. Our language came from Britain. Most of America, traditional American food came from Great Britain. Our culture came from Great Britain. Our legal system originated in Great Britain out of English common law. You cannot extricate the United States from the British Empire. You can't hate the British Empire and love America. And they understand that. And unfortunately, I think a lot of conservatives, like they just saw all the drama with Meghan Markle and, uh, and, and Prince Harry as being celebrity gossip. It's like, why do we care about this stuff? Well, we should care about this stuff because that was very calculated and it was meant to damage the British royalty, which is a British institution, which is what is attached to our culture. And so for that reason, Americans should pay attention because it's not just the British royalty that Kamala Harris and her ilk hates. It's what came out of the, of Britain because our colonies like, like Jamestown, uh, Plymouth, they were authorized by the King of England. The King of England is what is, he is the one that allowed his subjects to go settle North America. So when they hate imperialism, they hate the military. That's what they're referring to. You can't defend America if you don't defend the British for colonizing America, because if the British had not colonized America, America would not exist. We, our American military would have never existed and we wouldn't have Memorial Day. And that is why it is more important now than ever before why we should celebrate Memorial Day. We should do it deliberately to spite these people who would abolish Memorial Day because they hate America, not because they're clueless, not because they're dumb and uneducated. They know what they're saying and they know what they're talking about when they say they want to get rid of Memorial Day. So we should stand behind Memorial Day and stand behind what the military really does stand for even though they are trying to change it for the worse. That is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Tune in next week for episode number 24, and be sure to follow all of our latest content at our newly redesigned website, stillrighttakepodcast.com, but with more pages to provide even more information for you guys to follow us. So you can see the full list of social media sites and podcast platforms where we are available at righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. We'll talk to you next week, guys.